Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Thanks for joining me for the third episode of The Blank Canvas with Anne McKevitt. Anne left home at 15 headed to London to try her luck in the big smoke, and she immediately snares a job as assistant to renowned hairstylist John Frieda. Within a year, she's styling royal heads in Kensington Palace, and soon after, musical royalty, namely Paul, Ringo and George. She builds a multi-million pound property development and interior design business with clients such as Elton John, Kate Moss and Annie Lennox. Next up, Anne helped pioneer the brand new TV format, Lifestyle Television, for the BBC. Homefront ran for 18 series with Anne as host for much of the time, selling over five and a half million copies of her own design books and establishing herself as the UK's answer to Martha Stewart. A major UK celebrity and businesswoman at the top of a game when the world shifts 180 degrees on the morning of April 26. 1999, and withdraws from her high-profile UK career and moves to Australia, reinventing herself under the radar as a global business advisor, brand builder, and philanthropist. Her clients include the likes of Beyonce, Jay-Z, Gwyneth Paltrow, Mercedes, all the way to the White House. I could go on, but better than that, grab a cup of tea and make it a big cup. This is a seriously large life. And let's hear from the woman herself. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Anne McEvitt. I had a pretty interesting morning uh, researching you and, and I Googled uh, northern part of Britain to find a little town that you grew up in. And, yeah, it's pretty isolated, isn't it? It is. It's actually not as isolated nowadays as it was when I was growing up because when I was growing up, there wasn't such good roads to actually get there. So when I was young, it used to take four and a half hours by car to get to the nearest cinema. <laughs> nearest cinema, nearest roundabout. Um, I don't think there was parking meters there. I'd never seen a parking meter till I went to London. And um, and also the biggest like proper supermarket because there was small shops locally, but there was not a big supermarket unless you went down to Inverness, which was the biggest uh, large town near where I grew up. So you know it was a very very isolated part of the north of Scotland. It's the most northern tip. My mom's house was about 30 feet away from the the top of Britain. <laughs> so, <laughs> and a little bit on the windy side. <laughs> I can imagine. It yeah. got me got me thinking, you know, I think we're about the same age. I'm, I'm not going to clarify that. Oh, we're, we're both in our 30s and <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> so I was thinking, okay, 15, you, you left school you left home, you went to London, you know, without a plan to, you know, make it in some way. And I'm thinking yep. at 15, oh my God, that's really young. And I was thinking of where I was at 15 and what I was doing. And uh, a kind of funny story came to mind. So I'm going to tell you that story. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can decide if it's funny or not. Um, so at 15, I'm at school and I'm, I'm going to Scots College 
So here's the Scottish connection. Yeah. I'm at Scots College in Sydney and I'm travelling from one end of Sydney to the other wearing a kilt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> not, not the easiest thing to do as a, as a teenager. Well, every, like literally every day or just occasionally? Oh, on Fridays for military <laughs> cadets. <laughs> Fantastic. Just, just character building stuff. So this is in the, I guess, the, uh, the early 80s. Yep. And it's the new year and the new concession passes for public transport haven't been issued. And, and here I am at Circular Quay in my kilt, no money, <laughs> pre-mobile phones, trying to get on the Manly Ferry. And they wouldn't let me on. They're like, nah, you got to pay. If you haven't got any money, then you got to bloody walk. And, you know, it's, yep. a, it's a long walk. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do here? Anyway, I plead the guy. Eventually, I managed to get him to bring the supervisor over and the supervisor comes over and he looks me up and down. And he said, all right, son, you show me what you got underneath your kilt, I'll let you on. I'm like, oh, yes. So, I, you know, lift the kilt. Fortunately, I had board shorts on underneath. They were like polka dotted, quicksilver <laughs> 80s, you know, I think pink polka dots, in fact. And I'm Fabulous. like... Fabulous. So anyway, I'll get on and there you go. But got me, aside from the Scottish connection, it got me thinking, oh my God, how much things have changed. And I guess looking back at that, you know, I think when I eventually told my parents, they were horrified, but I did think, well, you know, it made us pretty adventurous and streetwise back then, pre-mobile phones. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so I looked at you and what you did and I thought, um, you know, that that moment has probably led to you with this adventurous life of travel and really, um, there you go. That's, that's the story. <laughs> I, I think it's a good story. I think it's a great story. Uh, I'm a little disappointed you had some boxer shorts on underneath because any true Scott wouldn't have, but you know, at 15, I guess there was a, a conflict there of like maybe not wanting to show the size of your manhood, but I think you did pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, Look, your story, it, it, it is outrageous. I'm kind of thinking after Billy Elliot has run its course, I'm expecting, you know, Anne McKevitt, the musical, is that going to happen? I've actually been asked twice for, by people if they could make um, films about my life. Um, and at the point that they asked me, which was probably about seven or eight years ago, I wasn't kind of ready to do it. I did actually try writing my biography and I found it too painful, but somebody... Because the early part is pretty painful. So somebody actually recommended to me that I should start with where I am now and my, work my way backwards. And then a very close friend of mine, Alan Cumming, who's an actor and also Scottish, um, he had a lot of kind of similarities with his youth. Um, we both grew up with a lot of domestic violence. And, um, you know, he found it hard to write his book, um, which is not my father's son, and he's done, you know, uh, quite a bit about that book and toured with that book a few years back. But I actually interestingly found his book kind of um, good for me to read Um, because sometimes when you feel like you're the only one that's gone through something and then you read somebody having gone through something similar, it, it feels different. So maybe now I could sit down and try and do it but uh, I don't know if the film's going to come out anytime soon. If it does, I think Kate Blanchett, because she's got much longer legs than me, could play me. <laughs> <laughs> it would take my five foot three into what, five foot eight or nine, which would be really good. 
and she looks so much better. So if we can kind of, you know, maybe that's good enough reason to try writing the book. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, I look forward to uh, reading it. So tell me all five foot three of you leaving at 15, leaving home, um, obviously very daunting. And how did you manage to head to London really with very little money and uh, I'm guessing very few contacts, if any, and within a year, maybe two, you're cutting the hair, you're cutting royal heads at Buckingham Palace. Mm. Uh, how does that happen? Um, well, at 15, I'd actually spent the four previous years from the age of 11 starting to plan and save to leave. So it was when I, I actually ran away from home at 15. So, you know, that's quite unusual circumstances, but I felt I had to because domestic violence was so bad that I just couldn't take it. But I also was kind of wise enough, even at a very young age, to realize that I couldn't do that unless I had some money to sustain me. So I worked um, Saturday jobs and after school and started a small business selling jewelry to get the money together and I ended up having uh, my goal was to get 1000 pounds so when I got that 1000 pounds I was 15 and then I started to research um the, the whole time I'd been working one of the places I'd worked was in uh news agents so I had access to all the big glossy magazines now there's no way I could have afforded to purchase those but because I um had access to them, I could see what was happening in the fashion world. And I was really keen to go to London and try and work in the fashion world. And I could, I thought one of the easiest ways I could maybe do that was by doing the hair for the magazine covers and all the fashion shoots that were inside. So I started to create a kind of, um, almost like an Excel sheet, but it wasn't an Excel sheet because I certainly didn't have a computer, but I started to gather information about who was doing each cover who was doing the fashion shoots inside, and created a list of the top 10 salons that kept appearing and the stylists that were getting named. So the, the salon that got named the most was John Frieda, and John himself was the stylist that got mentioned the most. So John at John Frieda was the person that did the most covers, did the most fashion shoots. So he was top of my list to try and get a job. So when I actually eventually did do that runaway at 15 and got on the train, I actually didn't know anybody in London at all. Um, I had arranged with a local travel agent to stay in a hotel uh, near Euston Station because I was going to arrive into Euston Station. And then I got on the train. And uh, when I arrived, it was actually on a Thursday just before the Easter weekend. Now, in Scotland, at that time, people didn't really take Easter off. So I had no idea that London was going to grind to a halt on the Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday, <laughs> which was not the best time to arrive. Um, so I had to kind of wait to the Tuesday and then I went out and I thought, right, I will walk in and see if I can get a job with John Frieda. If I don't, I'll work my way down the list to Daniel Galvin and Tony and Guy and all these other salons. Um, but when I walked into John Frieda, it was about midday and I said, can I get a job, please? Didn't realize you're meant to kind of do a letter or anything formal. And they sort of looked at me strangely and said, well, come back at six o'clock this evening and we'll give you an interview. So I went and had that interview 
And um, the guy who interviewed me actually went on to become a very famous hairstylist in his own right with his own hair care product range as well. So his name was Nicky Clark. And um, after he interviewed me, he said, can you do a two or three day trial? And I said, yes. So he said, well, let's do a two day trial. When can you do it? And I said, I can do it tomorrow. So the following day I came in and I did two days of a trial. And then at the end of that, I had a job. Um, the, the kind of the interesting part, I think, that changed my life more than anything was that John Frieda himself would have a new junior work with him about every week to 10 days because he was not the most patient man in the world. And um, they kind of wouldn't last very long because most people were actually quite scared of him. <laughs> because <laughs> he was kind of so focused on what he was doing and the hours he worked were extremely long. Um, but I was used to working at a very young age, so I'd started working when I was seven years old. So, it, you know, working to me wasn't a problem. And then I was eventually asked about 10 days after I started in the salon as a junior, could I assess John? So I started to assess John and I ended up assessing him for 11 months. Uh, so I actually worked with him side by side every day for about 18 hours a day. Um, and he's only ever trained two people. One is Nicky Clark, who became very famous in the UK, and then myself. So we were the two kind of protégés that he had. Um, and because of that, I fast-tracked how long it took to train to do hair. Normally it takes three to four years. I did it in 11 months. So I was actually qualified just after my 16th birthday. Wow, that's extraordinary. <laughs> I guess that the thing I take out of that is the work ethic you developed, uh, you know, from a young age set you up to be able to uh, take advantage of that opportunity when it presented itself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to this day, it actually is one of the hardest things for me to do is actually try and not overwork. I have to really temper myself and be conscious of not overworking so I work really hard at not working <laughs> so you know because what's normal to me is not normal to other people and you know my partner has actually been really good at uh, bringing me down into what's the kind of standard work amount of hours you should do as opposed to what I think is normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah gotcha yeah it's interesting because for myself I would believe the work ethic I gained, you know, working part-time jobs and whatever as a teenager at high school, similar thing. It totally set me up. So when I did leave school and I did badly in, the, you know, the final exams, failed everything and just thought, okay, I've got to go and get a job. But that didn't daunt, that wasn't daunting because I'm like, okay, I know how to do that. I can do that. And then I eventually found things I like doing and I went from there. Whereas I look today at, you know, maybe back then as well, but those kids that don't have to or aren't pushed to or aren't inclined to work at a young age and they study and then they go to university and then they get out of university and they still, some of them haven't had a job. Without that work ethic, it's, it, be, it can become a real problem. Well, they're kind of living in their head all the time. And I, I see that with some of the um, sort of teenagers that are 17, 18 that I know, um, that they've gone through that whole schooling thing, but everything's been living in their head. They've had no actual roll your sleeves up work experience. Um, and I think that's incredibly important for all young people to do that, that it's not just what's written on a page and what's a book. And you've actually got to go out and learn customer services by actually interacting with real people. You've got to learn how to 
you know, get there on time, be dressed, <laughs> look the part, uh, all those things that you kind of take for granted. Um, nowadays, so much of that's kind of missing. So I think the sooner you can get uh, a teen to either start their own business, which is now very doable as a teenager, we can create an online platform business, or to actually go out and do some work or do both, because that's actually going to be way better experience than what you're going to get from any kind of exam results and ultimately will uh, serve you best to um, have the career that you want because you will feel confident. That's the other thing. Like if you don't do stuff, you don't actually build the confidence because it's like a muscle. Yeah. If you're not using it, you won't have confidence. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Do you think it's talking of teens and kids and people say leaving school now, do you think it's easier for kids now than it was a couple of generations ago or do you think it's harder? Um, there's a mix. I think some things have actually got easier and some things have got harder. So I think the pressure of social media now is ridiculous. And so that peer pressure is kind of 24 seven. So the peer pressure or the bullying that you might've had in school during the school day and in my day and in your day is now something that happens online after school. And, and you know, you find out that so-and-so was invited to a party and they weren't, or, you know, somebody's just bought the new Nike $400 sneakers and they can't afford them because their parents can't afford them. So it makes them feel bad. So there's a lot of pressure around, you know, peer pressure, bullying, and also the whole kind of brand piece of how um, retail has gone has really had a massive pressure on kids as well like do they look cool I know that we literally just did not care what we were wearing as long as it was clean um, and I at some point that changed where kids became very very brand aware and I think that's quite detrimental because they also it's like a uniform like I took my niece out shopping probably two years ago um, and well, there's two things I found fascinating, and I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. <laughs> she maybe, she maybe she will mind me sharing it. But one thing was she actually didn't really know how to walk around a store and actually look at real clothes on hangers because she bought almost everything online. So I had to kind of show her to move around. And, and then the second thing was that you know, literally everything she wanted to buy was some kind of brand. It was an Adidas or a Nike or whatever, right down to the underwear. And I was like. I was the opposite. I wanted to not wear what everybody else was wearing. So if somebody was buying that, I'd be buying the opposite. So um, there's that kind of tribe mentality that comes from what you're wearing. And then because of that, there's the pressure of if you haven't got the latest thing, then you're, you're not the cool kid anymore. So I think it's pretty hard. I think the, the things that we had that were hard were just... Um, you know, I suppose it was harder for people going back a couple of decades ago to know what was really going on in the world. Um, you had to literally get on a plane, train or an automobile to do that. Nowadays, you can kind of know what's happening in a nanosecond because of social media, because of news, because everything's instant. You can tell what's happening with, you know, a protest somewhere or you can tell what's happening with a piece of bad news out of China or out of U the US or Canada or anywhere, that, that news is almost instant. So um, what we didn't have to deal with was the kind of fear factor around instantaneous news, which I think also creates anxiety for kids nowadays. Yeah, completely agree with you. 
Thanks for telling me that. And thanks, uh, thank you, Nice, for sharing. <laughs> I better, when I come off this, I better tell her I've told you. <laughs> you and all your entire audience. <laughs> thank you. So let's backtrack to you with John Frieda. In 11 months, you've kind of uh, risen through the ranks, I guess, and been mentored by the iconic uh, hairstylist, uh, John Frieda. So tell us about, is there any classic experiences you can tell us about? Because I imagine there was some pretty um, interesting, you know, A-list clients and the royal family. Well, there was literally every day all that kind of came in were A-list clients and royal family. So, you know, people like Boy George would turn up at 6 p.m. most nights because one of the stylists there, Peter, used to do his hair most nights before they'd go out clubbing. So a lot of the salon staff kind of interacted with celebrities, not just doing their hair, but actually socializing with them as well. Um, you know, so there were, there was those types of things happening. Um, it, we Not only did we do kind of celebrities and A-listers, but we did politicians, we did the newsreaders, we did kind of everybody that, that was around. Um, I guess the stories that people always want to hear from me is like, what was it like doing the royal family? But for me, it was kind of so ordinary because... I did the Queen of Spain, the Queen of Greece, um, Queen Nora Jordan. And uh, so I used to do their hair on a regular basis. And then I would go to Kensington Palace three times a week. So to me, it was just kind of completely normal. I would have normal conversations with each of these um, these royal women. And um, I got friendly with, uh, for example, the Queen of Greece's daughter. I became very friendly with her because she was a similar age to me. So it wasn't kind of unusual. I didn't think it was unusual, but obviously other people since have told me it is. Uh, the other thing that people found very strange, which again, I was kind of too um, unswitched on to realize this was odd, was that I used to do all the Beatles hair apart from John Lennon because he had passed away. So I used to do Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr and George Harrison and all their wives. Um, and I would go to their homes and do that. So when I met my first husband who works in a music business, and I told him some of my clients, he's like, what, like you've done three of the Beatles? Like, yes. And then I said, but you know, quite often I would cut George Harrison's hair sitting on the piano that, that um, John Lennon had written Imagine on. And literally we would sit at the grand piano on the piano chair and I would cut his hair with it just pulled away from the piano a little bit. And I didn't kind of think that was very odd. Now I do know that that was a bit strange. <laughs> but at the time, it was just a normal day's work for me. Wow. Um, so I would do, you know, go to the royal families. I would be going to photo shoots most days for magazines and, and um, for advertisements and then doing lots and lots of pop videos. So if you can think back to Foreigner and all these bands that had big, big hair, I'm afraid I was highly involved in that big hair with quite a lot of those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that head and stylist. <laughs> yes, so I, I can be blamed for quite a lot of those hairstyles. <laughs> oh, that's classic. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty extraordinary. Tell me, did you ever, you know, like accidentally nick the ear of, you know, a royal head or, you know, chop a chunk? chunk of hair out where it shouldn't have gone? Not with any of them, but there was one newsreader who, I've forgotten his name, and he was a really prominent 6pm newsreader. You know, it'd be kind of like Peter Overton or somebody. And at the time I was still a junior, 
So I hadn't fully qualified. I wasn't cutting his hair, but I went to shampoo him and it was the first time I'd shampooed. Uh, I was only maybe about a week into learning, to, you know, doing shampoos. And, um, he had come in at about four o'clock in a, in a rush because he had to be back out of the salon by five and sitting reading the news at six. And I absolutely drenched him. He <laughs> we had to take his shirt off and tumble dry it while he was getting his hair done. Um, and then sort of quickly put it on. And then, and then at night, I was like, oh my God, I hope he reads the news okay. But, you know, stuff like that occasionally would happen, but not too often. <laughs> oh, classic. So let's just briefly go back to where you grew up. And I think you had a brother. What path did he take? So my brother um, is two years older than me, but I always kind of considered him my younger brother because he was um, he was the good kid at home and I was <laughs> the bad kid. Where I I was someone that was like, no, I'm not going to do anything you tell me to do. I'm going to do my own thing. And my brother was very good at kind of being, you know, he would he would do what he was asked to do. My own parents. Um, so I, when I left at 15 and kind of went off and formed my career in fashion first, uh, I knew that he wanted to leave home, but he also didn't want to upset my parents and and go and leave too. So in the end, I um, talked to one of my clients, and, and he really, really loved music, and he wanted to do something in the music business. He had no idea what not form a band or anything, but he wanted to be a behind-the-scenes person in the music world. So I had a client who had a sound company, did lots of big tours, and I just said to him, look, my brother, you know, he'd love to do a trial of any kind. And this was like probably midweek. He said, look, can your brother get here for Friday? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I will give him a trial over kind of five days. Um and he can come and work on one of the gigs that we're doing at the moment. So that was with U2. So my brother's very first job in the music business was working on U2 uh, tour. I can't even remember which one it was at the moment, but, you know, that, that's, that's what he that's, did. That's like sister of the year there. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> so he came and he camped on my floor and my I was just in like a flat share at that point. So I had my own room, but he was camping on my floor and then going off and working on U2 each day. And at the end of it, my client said, look, you can get a job. But he'd also, while he'd been there, offered other jobs. So very, very quickly, my brother developed a career and, and ultimately became one of the top stage managers there is in the world and still does that. So he's the tours that he works on uh, and he'll do the whole world tour with each artist are people like Pink. He's done three tours of Pink, uh, two tours with Adele. He's just finished, you know, done two tours of Madonna, um, Robbie Williams, the Black Crows, uh, Radiohead. He's, he's literally done every major artist that's out there. He has been the tour manager for the, sorry, the stage manager for the tour and uh, being responsible as a stage manager to make sure everything's ready for the artist to get onto stage and then actually get the artist on stage, which with some people can be pretty hard. I'm not going to name names, but there's some artists, particularly maybe a female artist that's been around a long time, it takes a lot of work to get her on stage on time and often will take 
she's there for hours before she arrives. But you know, he's you know, it's amazing because when I go and see, you know, I I remember going to see him do Adele a couple maybe about a year ago, two years ago, and you know, here I am in Sydney at this massive stadium, knowing that my brothers put the whole thing together to make it happen that night, and then get her up there on stage and make sure it runs properly. And you know, he's the one doing all that, and I feel incredibly proud and. um, it's a big uh, yeah. So he he's done incredibly well too. Wow, that's cool. So let's jump back to you. You're a stylist. You're in London, and uh, I believe a car accident happened and derailed. Um, you know some of the plans at the time. Yeah, I was 19, and I was actually heading back to Scotland to see family, and um, we were on a country road um, going over the speed limit because people always did in this particular stretch of company road we were going about 65 70 miles an hour and there was four five cars in a row that were kind of been traveling on the same road for quite some time for maybe about 10 miles and suddenly this tractor pulled out from a field so four of us stopped we were fourth in line so the three cars in front stopped we stopped but the car behind didn't stop and plowed into the back of the car that I was in at kind of a 65, 70 mile an hour speed. Um, so we were stationary. They completely just full force right into the back. And then we impacted the other three cars in front with the force. Oh. And so then I, um, I then ended up in hospital for 11 months and 23 days um, because I was unable to walk. And they didn't know if I was going to be able to walk again. So I was in a completely white room that did have a burgundy wall behind me, but I couldn't actually see that burgundy wall because I couldn't actually move my head back to see it. So to me, it was just this white room. And I didn't talk for the first four months which I've now made up for. <laughs> um, but, you know, that first four months, I just mentally shut down. It wasn't that I physically couldn't speak, because I could. I just mentally didn't want to speak. So um, after 11 months and 23 days, for about two weeks, Paul and Linda McCartney, who had were not only clients, but had become very good friends, um, we're like, no, Anne, we've got to get you over there. We're, we're sending a plane and we're getting you down to London and we've arranged for you to see somebody who looks after the Royal Ballet and he's going to start treating your injuries. Uh, so they flew me down in a private plane um, back to London and, I, and then they paid for my treatment for the next two years. Um, so, you know, incredible generosity. I would not be walking or doing anything today um, had it not been for that generosity of both Paul and Linda. Wow, that's incredible. Whoa. Did you, I mean, I'm sure you had many tough moments through that, but did you believe that you were going to walk again or were there many times where you thought you weren't going to? Like what was the, um, wow. You can't imagine how intense that must have been. Um, I have always had this thing of not believing what I'm being told by people of authority. <laughs> because I went to school and I used to sit there going so bored, kind of going, oh my God, this is so boring. I could be doing so much more of myself <laughs> out of school. Um, so 
the positive thing for me was when the doctors would kind of be very doubting you know, of what, what the potential for me was, I was, you know, saying, well, I'll show you what I'm capable of. I'm going to be walking again. I didn't know how that was going to happen, but mentally I never resigned to the fact that I would be in that position forever. I always felt I would be back walking and doing stuff and being myself. I just didn't want to have the resources or the know-how how to do that and was incredibly fortunate to have Paul Linda do that. And also John Frieda uh, helped a lot as well. He helped pay for medical treatment for me too. And also Mick Jones from Foreigner, who uh, was also a client, and he also helped step in in the early stages too and gave me some recommendations of people I should be going to see. So a lot of people sort of came around me and they didn't have the expertise, but the, you know, they put out their, to their network to find experts to help. Wow. Good friends, huh? Yeah. It's actually, you know, at the end of the day, you need people who, not necessarily family sometimes, to help you do stuff. You actually need people who are in a bigger circle to help you do things. Because people always say, you know, you need your family close to you and your, and your friends. Sometimes family are so overawed by what's happened to you in a situation like that, they are just going with what would be standard treatments and you need somebody to have a different viewpoint. And, and that's kind of what made, me, made it possible for me to learn to walk again. But it did take me two and a half years to learn to walk properly. Um, two years walking on flat surfaces and another six months to be able to climb a staircase. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and sometimes with family, sometimes the relationship you might have with a certain family member isn't good for you mentally. You know, there could be a dynamic going on there where you, you may not get well and you might get <laughs> more well with another person, you know. Yeah, and, and, and I, you know, I definitely think that was a situation with me where I actually had to get out to, to get better as well because suddenly I was back in a situation which I'd escaped from. Makes sense. So pretty soon after, I believe you started your first business, which was a property development business. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, um, the first business I started was property development out of sheer fluke. Um, I had um, met my first husband and we got married 10 days after we met because I'm somebody who, you know, likes to ponder on things for months and months. And (laughs) 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 it did last 30 years. So it was a 30-year marriage of a 10-day meeting. Um, And so... We uh, decided that we would buy a property and I used that property as a way of recuperation. So my intention was not at that point to start a business. I was actually still physically recuperating. So I gradually did this property up bit by bit over a kind of eight or nine month period. It was uh, right at the height of not the last recession, but the recession before it, um, back in the 80s. And I, um, when I'd, or was it 90s? I can't even remember at this point. So when I'd finished doing this up, uh, lots of my friends said to me, oh my God, you should put this on the market. You should sell it. It looks incredible. And I didn't really want to sell it because I just finished doing it. But then I thought, well, maybe if I bought another one, I could use that as recuperation again and continue the process. 
So I did put the property on the market and I ended up getting all these amazing people wanting to buy it. Uh, so I had the editor of Vogue wanting to buy it, Alexandra Shulman. I had Kate Moss wanting to buy it. I had JK from Jamaraquai wanting to buy it and then lots of other people. So they were all trying to outbid each other for the property. Um, and ultimately the editor of Vogue put in the asking price, which was unheard of in those days because people were losing money right, left and center in a big way. They were losing tens of thousands of pounds. She put in the asking price offer. So I thought, okay, I'll sell it to her. But this was kind of pre-mobile phone days. So that next week, she went off to the Paris catwalk shows. And while she was off at the Paris catwalk shows, suddenly um, this American guy came in and he said, I want to pay over the asking price for it. But only, he came on a Wednesday and he said, only if I can complete on the property on the Friday. So I tried getting hold of Alexandra Shulman, but couldn't because she was going from one show to the next in Paris. I, I got hold of her boyfriend, told him, but he couldn't get hold of her either because she was going from one show to the next. So in the end, I did what they call in the UK, which is gazumped her purchase. And then I went on to um, let the American guy buy it because he spent 180000 more over the asking price to get the property. So, you know, I thought about it for like a nanosecond, but because he was offering so much more money, I was like, okay, I'm going to let this guy get it. So he purchased the property. And I then was homeless, literally had nowhere to stay. All the furniture went into storage and camped at a friend's. And then on the Monday, Alexander Shulman got in contact with me via my solicitor, my lawyer, and said, you know, uh, could I get in touch with her? So we eventually spoke that day. And she said to me, all she said to me was, I want to buy your next one. And I went, my next what? <laughs> and she said, the next apartment or flat that you do up, I want to be first in line for that so that I don't lose it. And I was like, oh, okay. And kind of put the phone down. I said, okay, I'll be in touch. And, and I had literally thought I would never work in fashion again because I've now pissed off the editor of Vogue by gazumping her. <laughs> but the impact was the opposite where she actually wanted to buy a property. And so I ultimately went away and thought, oh, I wonder if there's a business to be had here. So I then uh, went about buying property and within the first year had 40 guys working for me full time, was doing about 10 properties a month. And eventually we didn't start with 10 to begin with, but very, in a few months, it very quickly became about 10 a month. And it became a very successful property development company. We, I would um, get the highest price per square foot in West London for every property I did. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so of course you now segued to your own lifestyle show um, and um, showcasing your interior design ability. Yeah, because I was 23 when I started my uh, property development company. And the second part of that was that eventually after maybe about two years doing a property development, I then had a lot of people come to me wanting me to do a property interior for them, but they already had a house or they already had a flat. So very quickly, I then set up a second company just to deal with the interior design side for the clients. And the clients then, again, 
were very well-known clients. You know, there's people like uh, Annie Lennox and uh, Elton John and so on ended up being my clients. And so a few years after that, I think it was about five years after I'd started my property development company at 23, the BBC came knocking and they said, we are starting a brand new genre of TV. It had never been done before. Uh, in the UK, it's a lifestyle show about homes being done up, and we'd love you to do just a segment on one of the episodes. Um, so I was like, okay, this is going to be my 15 minutes of fame. I'm literally going to do this just so my family can see me on telly. Um, so I did three kitchens up for that first episode. And um, it was I started TV on the very same day for the same show with Kevin McLeod, who some people will know from Grand Designs. So we started exactly the same time together on the same my, show. My wife calls him her TV husband. Okay, well, I will. Let, <laughs> I can give her Kevin's number. <laughs> Sorry, Lee, you might lose her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Kevin and I started out together at the same show. We'd never done TV before. We were, you know, all newbies. Nobody taught me how to do anything on camera because I literally thought I'm just doing this segment. Um, and suddenly the, the show came out three weeks after I'd recorded it, which is incredibly fast. Um, and my life literally changed overnight. So when it went to air, the first episode, I think we got either eight or nine million people viewing it. And the following day, I jumped in a black cab to go to Selfridges and get something, thinking everything would be normal, as it had been for the other 28 years of my life. And suddenly I was literally surrounded by people. The cab driver knew who I was. He was talking about all the kitchens I'd done. I jumped out and then all these people in Oxford Street started surrounding me, asking for autographs. And then I couldn't kind of get into Selfridges. So it was just very odd because in those days there were only four TV channels in the UK. Yeah. So if you appeared on TV, it was kind of a big deal because most people would have seen you at some point. And then, of course, being Scottish, I've got a very distinct accent and the red hair didn't help for people (laughs) seeing me. So um, my life changed overnight. And that that day, the BBC rang me up and said that my segment had been the most popular, had been rated the highest, and could I now do the show ongoing? Could I actually be one of the main presenters on the show? So I'd never considered doing TV. I'd been behind the scenes on pop videos and all sorts of things, but, you know, this was new to me, and I just thought, okay, I'll give it a go. But I also understood if I was going to go down that road that there wasn't really money in TV. If I was going to be smart, I would have to monetize it in a different way. So is that that why you did the books? Yeah, well, the books were also part of monetizing in a different way. So I ended up doing five books. My first book was... Um, you know, sold one and a half million copies. I've sold five and a half million copies of my books altogether that were all interior design books. And um, the books were kind of more of a promotional vehicle because ultimately I knew I wanted to sell product because I had been, when I was John Frieda's junior, I had helped John put together his hair care range. So when he did that hair care range, I was the one taking the five litre bottles of shampoo, sticking a funnel in a small bottle and pouring those into the small bottles and sticking the labels on them. 
And that's how we started that hair care brand, which went on to sell for 675 million about 10 or 15 years later. So I realized that if I was going to be smart and because I'd been surrounded by so many clients who would come in and tell me they were writing, you know, such and such a song. And then I would hear it had gone to number one, three weeks later or four weeks later. I just assumed that everything that you want to do in life, you create and it becomes a hit because I'd been surrounded by people who all had hits. So I thought if I'm going to do TV, then it would make sense for me to create my own home range of products, bedding and, you know, uh, furnishings and so on. So the the books were more of an additional promotion to it. Plus, I wanted to write books because I'm dyslexic, really badly dyslexic, and I wanted to prove that I could write a book first, book number one, and see if it would sell. And again, the book I approached in a different way. Uh, It was the first interior design book. It had a soft cover. It was priced less expensively than most interior design books because I wanted people to be able to open the book on the floor and try the things out. And I didn't want it to be a coffee table book. I wanted it to be something people used. So the next stage then was to move on to doing products. So why did TV for 10 years? Uh, During that time, I was also running a very large company where we were then starting my whole homeware brand uh, to to launch Stuart. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yes. I used to get called Britain's Martha Stewart all the time in the press. So, um, except I can't bake apple pies, but. (laughs) (laughs) So are you, I mean, are you good with the business plan and the spreadsheet and the whole, you know, the, the accounting side of running these businesses or are you the goal maker and, you know, the creative or, how does that work? No, I'm pretty good at all of that because I've had to be. You know, I had to, I used to have, and well, I am, but in a very, very basic way. So um, when I ran my property development business and I did literally 500 properties in a five year period, um, I would be doing the deals. So I'd be the, the tough bitch doing the deals of buying the properties and selling them. And, and you literally have to be really tough if you're working in a property business on a regular basis because it's pretty cutthroat. So I was the tough cookie doing that, but I kind of thrived on the kind of harshness of that. Um, and then I would be the one doing the budgets for each each property we would do up and making sure we stuck to budget because I knew how much profit I wanted to make from each one. But I would literally do these in just a notebook. Um, and I worked off a coffee table for the first two years. I didn't even buy a desk. Um, so, you know, it was done in a very basic way, but I had a handle of that. So when, when it moved up to doing my own product range, it was me who was very much the CEO overseeing this happening, you know, people doing the work behind the scenes of, um, the accounts and all that sort of stuff, I would be looking at it and making sure we're actually making money from stuff. And I would be the risk taker as well. The one who would, uh, decide, what I would invest in to make something happen. Sometimes that would be a big investment, big personal investment. Um, But, you know, it was a very, very exciting time. Um, Because on the one hand, people uh, saw me on TV thinking I just kind of fluffed cushions and painted walls and stuff. But in reality, when you're doing that on TV, what you're doing 
outside of TV is that I was actually running a very large company. Um, and so it was hard work, but also I had my handle on everything. And if I don't know something, then I'll get expertise in the field as to what I, what I do need to know and what I need to understand. Yeah, gotcha. So why, by the sound of it, you were you know, the top of your game there and doing extremely well. Uh, why did you then move to Australia? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, okay, so I'd been on TV for about 10 years and a colleague of mine um, who was a newsreader, she was the most prominent newsreader in the UK, um, she got shot dead outside her front door. But prior to her being shot dead, the day she was shot dead, I got a phone call at 10 o'clock in the morning from potentially the person who'd actually done this. And he had a threatening phone call with me. He started to tell me two other celebrities whose details they had, their phone numbers, their addresses, etc. And I was busy that morning, so I took this call, and I was very rattled by the call. Um, but I thought, okay, I'm going to ring these two colleagues at lunchtime. So lunchtime came, and quite often at lunchtime, I would go and make lunch in our work kitchen, and then I would sit down with staff, and we would put the news on. That was kind of our routine. So off I went and made a sandwich, and then went and sat down, and we flicked the news on to discover that my friend and colleague, Jill Dando, had been shot dead outside her front door. And she was one of the people that this guy had named when he rang me. And then, um, then, the, then they started to try and find her killer. And uh, after about 100 days, uh, the press did this massive story. It was in every single Sunday newspaper that I was the killer's next target. So I was the front page. I was, you know, two or three pages inside, and it was very disconcerting and very uncomfortable. Wow. Uh, so I, um, I already had post-traumatic stress disorder anyway from growing up in a domestic violence situation at home as a child, and then having my car accident had also given me post-traumatic stress from being in a situation of not being able to walk for so long. And now suddenly I had this third whammy come in and I just literally felt like I was under attack. <clears throat> so I had to make a decision, would I ease myself at TV or would I keep going? So I kept going for quite some time trying to continue doing TV and being in the public eye. But behind the scenes, what people didn't realize was the protection I was having to get was pretty intense. I don't really want to go into the details of that, but I had very intense protection. And so I was looking over my shoulder all the time, wondering was I going to get shot? And then they caught who they thought was the killer. He went to prison and then they realized they had the wrong guy and they had to release him. Um, so during that period, I was like, you know what? I've always loved Australia. I fell in love with Australia when I first came here, oh, like 28, 30 years ago where I, I cried when I went back in the plane to the UK. I didn't want to leave. I just absolutely adored Australia. So I felt like this was the time to do a number of things. It was time to move off TV, to sell my um, product business, which at that point was also selling a lot of product in the US, and to emigrate to Australia. So I did all three and had a complete life change. And then when I 
made all those, I mean, it sounds like it happened quickly, but it was over a quite long period. We had to keep it very secret that I was looking to emigrate because if the press got hold of that, we were scared that they were going to not understand why. And um, so I was trying to avoid that situation. And so then when I did move out here, it was so refreshing to me to not be known, to go back to the life I'd had pre-TV and to live under the radar uh, was absolutely delightful um, and was the right thing for me at the time because of what I'd gone through. Wow, that's pretty intense. Yep. <laughs> Incredible. Is, how did you deal that kind of a lot of detail deal with the stress of that time did you is that when you got into meditation or did you drink or what was your release for coping with um that that time period um it ironically it's not just that time period it's affected me for the last 20 years uh so it because i with post-traumatic stress if anybody has it they'll know that triggers can set you off so you can be perfectly normal one day and there's something in the background or you see something and it will trigger a situation that makes you feel like you're back in that moment so that hasn't kind of gone away so I have what's called complex post-traumatic stress disorder because it's not just from one scenario um and so how I've dealt with it is I've done yoga for the last 30 years, which is incredibly important to me. I do meditate for about 10 minutes each morning. Sometimes I forget to do it if I'm too busy, but I do like to try and make that part of my routine. Uh, I swim. Um, I find swimming a really good form of meditation, so I try and do uh, at least a half-hour swim every day. And walking as well is really important to me. So it's kind of... Thinking time. Thinking time is really important and, and placing stuff in the right place. But I guess the thing that I avoided for, you know, from that time to now who we're talking is that I avoided going back into the public eye because I, that was a trigger for me. Um, and it's only now that I've worked through a process called the Richardson Trauma Process that has actually helped me be able to get back up on stage and, uh, you know, do this interview with you or consider even doing a press interview. That was not possible for me to do until recently, until I went through a particular trauma process, which has helped. And I tried many different trauma processes to try and get over that hurdle, but this particular one was the one that worked best. It wasn't a complete solution, but it's kind of a, an 85% solution has helped. Right. Well, how I met you, um, as you know, was uh, earlier this year you were giving a keynote speech in Melbourne um, to a big group of people and you know, I was pretty blown away by your story and, and hearing more about your story, it makes it even more astonishing that you've had the guts to, you know, get back out there and get up on stage and share your story. So um, thanks for having the courage to do that and I'm sure it'll inspire a lot of other people to, you know, push beyond those those barriers um thanks Lee. Oh, yeah my pleasure i guess that that brings us to the brand building you know business coaching side of things which i think is your main focus now mm. uh, is, is that kind of the business that you started up when you came to australia and is is that what you're focusing on yeah, I mean, um, when I came here, I actually had no idea what I was going to do as a business. I spent six months trying to figure out what I did want to do. Uh, but ultimately, I set up um, 
a boutique branding company, which is a brand advisory. So we, um, we work with clients to take their existing brand, or in some cases a startup, and uh, to amplify that brand. And, um, you know, that's, that's become much more successful than I ever imagined it would. It was really more of a passion project for me than anything. The first client wasn't really a client. It was a friend asking me who said, look, she was a celebrity in the UK. And she said, look, you've built this whole brand of homeware around who you were and you've gone on to sell that business. Um, and would you consider building a brand for me? So I did that for her. And then because of that, then I started to get all these other clients who were celebrities or sports people or, or high net worth entrepreneurs coming to me and, and asking me to do it. So then I kind of officially set up what's known as MDPC Global. That's M for Mother, D for Delta, P for Papa, C for Charlie. MDPC Global is my um, brand building company and brand advisory. So we have, you know, some pretty huge projects. The, the biggest project I've been working on um, uh, last year, for example, was $31.5 billion. Some projects are sort of one to five billion, but they are big projects and a lot of extremely well-known clients as well that um, are known globally. For, they may be known for their acting or they're known for their, their music or their sport. And what I do and my team do is we go in and either work directly with the celebrity uh, or sometimes the management have brought us in to work with that celebrity. And then we expand what that celebrity can have around their brand. So we build things around who they are as a personality. And then I've also got other clients, you know, who work in age care and finance and funding and all sorts of other areas as well that um, want to expand their brands beyond the current uh, areas they're in. Wow, that's that's super cool. So t tell me, and the not that I want the celebrity's name, but I'm interested. Was it Goop? Were you a part of helping build the Goop brand? I, I there's a certain amount of stuff I can say and I can't say. So I can I can say that Gwyneth Paltrow has uh, openly talked about me. Uh, helping her build her businesses. Um, she's shown me on videos on YouTube where I'm working with her on projects. I can't say what those projects are for confidentiality, but you can put two and two together. <laughs> um, and then, you know, once I'd been doing clients with clients of that caliber, what they do is they just tell their friends. So then all their friends who are in similar genres, you end up starting to work with them as well. Yeah, wow. Yeah, because I think it's really cool what she's done. So Yeah, uh, she has. She yeah. has done an incredible job. When I started working with her, she was only six people working on Goop. Yeah. Now, you know, it's hundreds of people and worth $400 million. Yeah. Um, And same when I started to work with Beyonce and Jay-Z. Uh, and they actually asked me to be a full partner with them, which I um, eventually turned down because I didn't feel it was the right kind of relationship because of how we'd started. But when I was working on some of their brand, um, you know, you, you start to build out something that's really um, rather interesting. And I've done that with Australian celebrities as well. So an Australian celebrity that's been open 
um, about me working with them is Michelle Bridges, who most people will know has gone on to build quite the empire uh, yeah. of her fitness. But Michelle's a really hard worker as well. You have to look, all these people, the assumption is that they, they become famous and then everybody kind of builds stuff around them. But every single celebrity that I work with, they work really, really hard. <laughs> they are working. They are, they are the ones, I go to their homes and they are with me for like two-day meetings to go through how we can grow their brand. Uh, they are the ones making decisions on what will happen and what they do and don't want to do. Um, and they're the one testing the product when it comes through. So they are highly, highly involved, every one of those people I work with. I don't work with anybody who will not fully immerse themselves in the process because I don't want to work with the management. I want to work directly with the celebrity to make stuff happen. Yeah, that makes total sense. It sounds like you've had many different careers and quite a few career changes along the way. Uh, what would you say to people out there who aren't happy with what they're doing and, uh, you know, thinking about a career change? Is there any sort of you know, simple words of advice you'd give them? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is that never stay stagnant anyway. Like, and whatever you're doing, you should always be constantly evolving uh, because everything else is evolving around you. And if you're not evolving with it, you're going to get left behind. The other thing is that, you know, obviously most people have mortgages to pay and kids to look after and school fees and all sorts of things and, and you know, ballet classes and piano classes and whatever for, for kids. So a lot of the time people will stay stuck doing what they're doing because they've got all these major financial and family commitments. But what you need to do is plan for what you want to do next. You can either do that as a side hustle while you're doing your main job, start a side hustle. Or plan to exit properly and start something something new. But never stay doing stuff you don't enjoy. I mean, I, I think, you know, you should never stay longer than six months doing something that's not really fun to wake up to every morning and enjoy. And if you aren't enjoying yourself, go seek the thing that is going to make you joyful. And go seek something that's also going to have decent money attached to it because people often forget that money actually does play a part in what kind of lifestyle you have. And although people will often say, oh, I'm not bothered about money. Well, actually, you kind of need to be bothered about money because if you, if you aren't, you won't necessarily have a lifestyle that you want. And if you don't, then you continue doing something that, that's not giving you that happiness at home as well. Makes sense. Do you, um, you will have quite an impressive legacy, but is it something you think about or are you just focusing on the next project and the future just all the time? No, as soon as I hit 50, it was like, I'm 53 at the moment. Um, and as soon as I hit 50, I was like, oh my God, no, everything I decide from this moment on, I have to make sure that I'm doing something that really warrants my time and that gives back enough as well. So um, I think everything, every client that I take on, I have to decide if that's a client I want to work with. Any new projects I personally start, I have to decide if that's the right thing. So one of the things I've been working on is um, launching a project called She Success. And She Success will be a place where entrepreneurial women can go and get courses on all aspects of how to grow business. 
And originally I was like, do I do this for men and for women? And I could have done that. But the reason I've targeted women is I have found that women are, are too humble, um, too behind the scenes and need to come out front. And I feel like if that can be part of my legacy, that would be uh, really important to me. I started a foundation about 15 years ago uh, when I sold my business, and that's done very well with microfinance in the developing world. When people had no idea what microfinance was, we were, you know, we'd already set that up and we're working on it very actively. So I, I have a number of things that I feel are legacy, but I think literally everything that comes across my desk now, I consider is this the right thing that I want to do next? Is this the next move that I want to make? Because time is on the other side of the, the, the watch at this point. And, you know, I want to make sure the next 30 years of my life are 30 very productive years that are about other people, really, about me being able to share and give back all the knowledge and know-how that I've learned in the last, in the previous 30. Yeah, beautiful. I know you've moved in political circles and I guess as a part of a lot of your philanthropic work, is that something you're looking to do more of? Well, I, I actually at one point considered going into politics because I'm very political. I've been very political from an extremely young age. I used to sit and read in the, the Times newspaper when I was about 10. Um, everybody else was reading like comics like in Britain, we have things like Jackie magazine and all that, and I'd be sitting there reading all these broadsheets. So I've been very, very political my entire life, and I did consider going into politics at one point, and that's why I ended up being an advisor to um, a number of presidents in America, the White House, going to the Senate there, and you know, been asked to do some stuff here as well. So I, that still interests me, but it's not something I now personally want to go into in a professional way. But having an influence is definitely something that uh, I feel is important. And, um, you know, I worked, I was sat on the board of Harvard for a number of years, uh, for Women's Leadership Board at Harvard. And then I was in, an executive in residence at Brisbane Graduate School of Business. So I've kind of seen the political aspect and then the kind of pre-educational part before you get there as well. Uh, and I kind of know feel that if I can start this this organization properly, she's success, that it will kind of automatically start attracting political people to come back to that and question how do we make equality speed up? Because at this point, like I remember when equality came in in the UK, I was probably about seven or eight when they said there was going to be equal wages for men and women. And I remember very clearly thinking, oh, that's great. I don't need to worry about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Never did I believe in a million years that in my 50s that things would still be really shit, basically, for women uh, who are trying to have equality, not just in finances, but just in how they're viewed in the workplace. And I now believe that because it's taken so long, we have to now actively do things to try and speed that up. And the more that organizations uh, can see the benefit of having women in leadership positions and sitting on boards, um, 
it will change the whole dynamics of a country. I mean, the interesting thing when you, you look at what's happened with the kind of the COVID situation that, that's happened around the world is that the, the countries that have fared the best are the ones with women leaders. <laughs> Wow. Now, I'm not saying that every country has to have a woman leader, but women are appro- the women leaders are approaching and had approached that in a different way from how the male leaders had approached it. Right. So I think, you know, that's interesting uh, and, and a reflection of how countries can be run slightly differently when there are women leaders, the same way that companies can be run differently when there are women leaders. But let, please don't mention Margaret Thatcher because I'm trying to pretend that she wasn't a women leader. Um, <laughs> Um, because I remember I actually remember thinking Margaret Thatcher was great when she first came in and then within about two years thinking this is like the the worst thing that's ever happened to the UK because she the power went to her head and she just wasn't a pleasant individual and didn't have pleasant ideas about how to govern a country Um, but on the whole I think we just need to have more female power but not in the kind of finger pointing way I think female power comes from just rolling your sleeves up and getting on with things and making stuff happen. And so with the She Success platform that I'm setting up, I really want to encourage women to be able to go on to that and learn stuff and improve their own personal situation. And that in itself will, uh, as a community, improve everyone's situation. Wow, I love the sound of that. I have a 16-year-old daughter and... um that's beautiful. Good. Oh, Let's yeah. get her on it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I have a last question for you. It's been an absolute treat to chat with you today. So thank you so much. And a pleasure talking to you too, Lee. And I can't believe we're at our last question already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read in an interview that the, the movie The Pursuit of Happiness is your favourite film. Yes, that, it is indeed. That begs the question. What is happiness to you? And have you unlocked the key to it? Oh, well, the reason the movie is my favourite film is there's so part, many parts of that movie that felt like my own life when I was 15. It was just so tough and so hard to actually do what I needed to do. Um, and in the pursuit of happiness from that point on to this point in my life now, I think happiness is making sure you are with somebody you absolutely adore and love. Uh, I think that's a really important thing to do and and to make sure you find the right person to be in your life if that's possible. And if it's not, you should move on. Um, And then I think just the contentment of knowing that you're achieving the goals that you've set out for yourself but that there's still more to do, that there's more things you want to do because there's nothing worse than than life feeling like Groundhog Day. And I've talked to many teenagers recently, actually, um, and there's and, and ones that are kind of 17 or 18 years old where they're so focused on what they've got to do in that last final year of high school, and it's all about the exam results. And I kind of come along and... and tell it from a different point of view and say, look, this is going to be a blip in your life. And the exam results you're going to get here are going to be a blip in your life. Because ultimately what you do beyond school is far more important than anything that you've worked on for the last kind of um, 13 years of your life, really, you know. Um, 
and and make sure you create an interesting life for yourself because happiness is actually having an interesting life and when life is a flat line and boring and groundhog day that's when then people um just feel like what's the point you know i can't do this i don't have the confidence so happiness is 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 making sure you create an interesting life for yourself and everyone has the options and capability to do that each and every one of us has the the responsibility to make sure our lives are interesting couldn't agree more so, sounds like the blank canvas Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Thank you for being on the blank canvas. Thank you very much, Leah. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope your audience got something out of it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Blank Canvas. Anne's story is certainly one of hard work, talent and resilience. It reminds me that change is the only constant. Life's going to deliver you monumental barriers. You just got to dust yourself off, throw yourself back into the ring again and again. That's how to have an interesting life and certainly never be bored. Get amongst it. Okay, to find out more about Anne and her business advisory firm, MDPC Global, head to the show notes and you'll also find Anne's personal website there as well. If you're enjoying this podcast series, please subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. And remember, reviews and ratings on your platform are much appreciated and sharing on your social media. Next week's guest is the supremely talented Eddie Perfect, songwriter, singer, actor, comedian, producer, and Tony-nominated composer. Until then, have a great week and live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.